Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development across our state. I'm your host, Jeff Brent, and this podcast is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. To incentivize or not to incentivize the great question of economic developers across the country for many years. Obviously, it wasn't Shakespeare who posed the question, but today incentives are in the mix of almost every job creation project. Luckily, there are experts like our next guest who can help companies and development officials make the most of both statutory and discretionary incentive opportunities. Bob Westover serves as Senior Vice President and Economic Incentives Practice Leader for Colliers International in Chicago. In his role, Bob works across North America to negotiate and secure local and state economic credits and incentives for his clients. He also has significant experience working in state-level economic development, spending more than 11 years as Director of Economic Development with the State of Illinois Department of Commerce. Bob Westover, welcome to Mississippi Prospects. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. So talking about incentives today, first of all, you know, this is your wheelhouse. When should incentives be pursued? Well, there's there's a couple of different directions to go with that. The, the In terms of timing of a project, it should always be engaging with the economic developers up front. Um, and so everybody has a team can understand what the needs are, if incentives are needed if, at all, if it's just a, for a utility or if there's bigger picture kind of questions and, and money that's required. The other part of that, though, is not leading with incentives. There's plenty of clients that we have that start with the incentives request, and that's just not the that's focus of a, of a good project. The project should be decided based on the operational needs and then follow through with your incentives request to level the playing field or to figure out where things should locate. So at Collier's, what incentives do you work to capture and what strategies do you use then to generate value back to your clients? So I think too often there's a, there's a notion in, in economic development world and in the corporate community where incentives are too focused on just the stereotypical jobs tax credits or things like that. Incentives are much broader in my mind and in our mind and our approach at Collier's. We've got you know, doing in-kind transactions are, are an incentive. Doing things with utilities that people don't normally think of in terms of getting you know, access and, um, of electric to a lot. You know, those are, those are important parts of a project that aren't necessarily thought of all the time. And that's part of what my team does to coordinate upfront to the extent we can, all the requirements for a project to occur. Um, you know, incentives are not just jobs tax credits or investment tax credits. They, they, they run the gamut of all sorts of other, of other approaches. So is that just thinking a little bit outside of the box and what people normally as an incentive? I don't like the term outside the box, but, <laughs> okay. but, but regardless, uh, I, I think so because it's a, it's a differentiator on some level where we present a kind of a, a, a broader suite of ideas to, uh, to a client that we're pitching or to a client that we're executing on a project for. So you, you were here talking at the uh, Mississippi Economic Development Council exchange conference on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Uh, it brought a case study with you because 
you have experience of doing business in Mississippi. In the case study, a private equity firm expanding their member company, Voyant Beauty. You know, let's let's go through that because I think it's an interesting case study. And you know, first off, what was the firm's goal overall with all their locations? Yeah, this was this was a pretty unique project because company wide they had gone through a couple of acquisitions and were trying to rationalize their manufacturing, uh, not just the products that they produced, but also you know the locations where to reinvest. And so they they acquired a bunch of uh, different facilities and operations. Now it became a question of rationalizing those, and and putting them in the most efficient locations, uh, both from a you know cost distribution perspective and making sure that it was sustainable down the road. This is an investment that wasn't going to be a five-year or 10-year window. We're talking about well past that. So it was a lot of the evaluation was consideration of the community and the and the you know, kind of the political climate as well, as well as trends for growth and and making sure that it was a business-friendly state and county and city to work in. And uh, one of the locations was uh, Olive Branch, Mississippi. Correct. Uh, up in North Mississippi, what was the existing operation profile? So it was really a soap manufacturer. Um, Fifty-seven employees were there. Um, there was a there was uh, a lot of the lines that were already existing there were were not current, um, and so that kind of we we needed to have Voyant recognize that and and to operationalize the, their growth plans. They needed to reinvest in the facility. And so it was a question of it, where that capital gets deployed, whether it's in Olive Branch, whether it's in upstate New York, where, where there was another facility or was at some other facility across the country as they're trying to figure out who goes where and what goes where. Uh, you know, COVID uh, actually part, played a part in, in, in this project, too. And I mentioned this during the conversation uh, this morning. You know, the, there was a pause for COVID. While everybody's taking inventory and stock of of what the the world meant, you know, after a few weeks or a few, you know a few years now, but the uh, it actually created a little bit of a project a product shift in their portfolio that suited the Olive Branch facility nicely. So uh, it was a little fortuitous uh, in terms of where you know the the products were going, uh, but Olive Branch ultimately benefited from it. Well, how did Olive Branch stack up against uh, other locations for Voyant? Well, initially it was it was not very positive, frankly. Um, but but over time, as we get to know both the management there, um, the the ability to have those faci- that facility specifically, kind of already in, set up, if you will, with with new investment in mind, but already set up to uh, to grow uh, in the new product lines that the company was signing contracts for. So it went from, you know, I don't know whether coin flip's the right term, but it was definitely, you know, at risk to shutter that facility. And eventually all sorts of arrows started pointing towards that, their direction. And um, that's where it came to, came to pass. So what was it then that was the differentiator that made that site work and move forward with the project? Yeah, so we had, pretty, we had a pretty high level of comfort in the labor pool. Um, and that's not something you hear every day these days. No. Um, but uh, we did a we did an initial study of the labor pool, and it seemed to be okay for the doubling of their employee base, or, or more than double their employee uh, base. So you know, there's always nuance to that. But but uh, from an abstract perspective, from a mile high perspective, it it seemed suitable. 
Uh, and so the combination of just operational benefits of being able to produce there and logistics uh, to distribute to the primary markets across the Midwest and Northeast and Southeast uh, all seemed to work out uh, all seemed to work out great and in their favor. The um, <clears throat> the the MDA and Soto County and and the city of Olive Branch all came collectively through with a with a with a nice incentives package as well to move the needle. Find the question. Oh, there we are. So, Bob, what eventually made the Olive Branch location work for this project? Sure. The uh, we the Colliers and and the uh, Voyant team went through a labor study uh, and tried to figure out if if the Olive Branch Metro and, and extent you know neighboring circum, na- neighboring communities, excuse me, uh, had ample supply for the labor that they wanted to recruit and retain. But also on top of that, you know, when we checked that box and the, and the answer was positive, the the combination of state, local, and city uh, incentives were actually the kind of the final sway, the, the needle mover, if you will, between um, you know investing there and and considering other alternatives, upstate New York or other different scenarios about you know, splitting up the facilities in other in other locations. So essentially, the the incentives then on the back end, you know, like you said, don't lead with this discussion, and that's why we sort of set up this conversation around it. Yep. Uh, that's the tiebreaker, and that's the way it should be. Um, you know, it, it, in the events that you know, all things being equal, you've got pros and cons from you know, political climate, tax climate, you know, labor availability, and all those other factors. If you feel comfortable that you're kind of at a at a at a midpoint between two different or an inflection point between two different locations, that's when the incentives move you know move a project one direction or the other, and in this case the the. The, the value of the incentives here uh, in, in Olive Branch from MDA were, were enough to win the project. You've brought up a few of the groups, organizations that helped with the project. How important was the collaboration in making this a successful expansion? Critical. And uh, part of what I like to do up front um, in any one of these site selection processes is to make sure that we're engaged with all the economic development teams up front. Um, transparency is important, so we're all working collectively as a team. If I can't tell you something, I'll, it's not because I don't want to. It's because you know there's confidentiality or a non-disclosure agreement or something that's getting in the way. My my approach is always transparency and and working with those teams as early as possible in the process. So no finish line is, you know, I don't do the 30-day sprint stuff. I, 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 unless, for some reason, those exceptions do happen. But the, the, the best result comes from a long-term relationship that starts with all of those teams and, and have shared documents and make sure that everybody's on the same page from the beginning and knows what the, what the request looks like, whether it's immediate or eventual. So that's your first project in Mississippi? Correct. So, Bob, how would you rate your experience in working with uh, the local economic developers in Mississippi and also the state being your first project? Sure. It was it was a great experience. And, you know, for each different entity, they they all have the different incentives that they can offer and they all take different amounts of time and, and the processes are all different. But everything was consistent in terms of the communication like that's what i try and you know get every project teed up with a with an expectation but also a timeline 
upfront understanding that each organization is going to have a different, you know, a different process and things I need to learn and do. So the combination of the state, the MDA, um, the DeSoto County folks and Olive Branch folks and TVA were, we were all worked in lockstep, uh, you know, full information sharing and everything was timely and, and, and delivered you know, as planned. And, and frankly, it exceeded the Voyant team's uh, expectations. So what does that mean for the future? Are you looking at more projects in Mississippi then? Yep. Damn right. Um, so <laughs> wait, so what we want to hear. <clears throat> uh, so the, the, uh, the idea now is in my taking, my takeaway is really just, okay, now I've got this positive experience. I, I said this morning in the conversation that I'm one for one in Mississippi and it's not a, it's not a question mark to me anymore. It's not, it's more of okay. Here's my experience. I know the I know the entities and what they can do, and I know the people, which is always helpful to be able to pick up a phone and, and count on a and, and count on somebody picking up on the other end. And I know what the tools are in the toolbox. And so having all that you know that knowledge and experience and a, and a case study behind it is important for me as I go in conversations with potential clients or existing clients that might be considering someplace in you know, the southern tier of states, wherever it might be. I've got a, I've got a positive case study and an anecdote that I can relay and, and, and share timelines and expectations that I'm comfortable with. And I think it's important in this case study, you know, you weren't just looking at Olive Branch. You were looking at how many of their operations. Well, so part of Part of what the, the study was was just a rationalization of all the manufacturing facilities that they had kind of they, they'd cobbled together through the acquisitions that I mentioned before, and so roughly you know half of those were going to be closed and the equipment moved to other other locations. So, well, truly a direct competition, if you will, was really just two locations. Uh, there were a couple of others that could have been fit to handle the Olive Branch. You know the equipment and the production for the soap products that uh, that Voyant was making, but the reality was it was a it was a competition between two locations. Uh, it, there's other ten others other locations that have been closed as a result of this process. Um, so it was truly a competitive situation. What uh, what's your primary takeaway if you you know when you present this case study? Uh, and you presented it this morning at a conference, though you're speaking to economic developers. But, you know, what's the takeaway with this story? Well, I think that the, the primary takeaway from the pure incentives perspective is you have usable tools. And, uh, and, it's, and it's not something that has question marks behind it. It's if, if you're doing a pro forma analysis of your project and your investment, you want to have green attached to everything and no yellows or question marks or reds if you can't use the incentive. But uh, but it's being offered. So having that certainty um, it always helps the, the decision makers, you know, be informed. And so going back to the private equity ownership of this group, you know, those those folks are largely focusing on the percentage points of an ROI or, or what their their payback period is for their investment. So, you know, the dollars and cents matter to most decisions, but for a private equity company, more you know, generally speaking, more so. Uh, so being able to have that reliability in our forecasts and our pro formas was critical. Let's move beyond the case study now. And you and I have talked about this uh, over the last few months a couple of times uh, about the types of properties that you've seen on your visits here uh, that you think could be attractive to some of your clients, you know, and, and what kind of projects are you handling right now? 
The, the majority of the projects are in the industrial sector, generically speaking, but uh, manufacturing and distribution logistics plays are, are, are predominant in, in, my, uh, in my queue. Um, and that's not by that's not by anything that I've focused on or the or the company is necessarily focused on. It's just how the world's evolved, especially post or during COVID and post COVID. So, uh, looking at infrastructure to support transit of of goods is critical. So, being at a crossroads of interstates, um, rail access sometimes is important. You know, cargo from ports is sometimes important, but that's all driven by the company and the and the investment that, that they're considering. But the reality is a lot of the distribution logistics plays that we're involved with are truck-based. And so that's that's about 50% of my project load right now, by the way. And so, you know, there's there's plenty of it that's still manufacturing-based. Um, but manufacturing then has to lead into distribution on some level because you manufacture the products and you got to send them out somewhere to a client. So it's all very interconnected from a distribution perspective. It's well in excess of half of my uh, project load right now. The a lot of the projects I've seen that have crossed my desk over the last uh, year, two years, uh, everybody's starting with, we want an existing building. Right. Um, and we know that the... Good luck. Yeah. Inventory is thin. Absolutely. Are you seeing that uh, across the country where you're in all the markets you're looking in? Uh, yes. I mean, it's it, it's a it's an exception and not the rule when you find something that suits a, a requirement. Um, <clears throat> that said, if we can branch out from a, the traditional logistics analysis and consider spaces that might be that might have a spec building or an available building, then, you know, if speed to market's important for you, then you have to consider, okay, well, I, I, do I have 18 months to wait for a build to suit? Or, or can I just go ahead and, and, and have myself operate 60 miles away from where I wanted to in the first place? So th those kind of considerations are, 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 we can make recommendations here at Collier's, but we, we have to ultimately lean on them to, to adjust their models and, and balance that speed to market versus the true logistics angles that they're considering. I know you said it's driven by the client, but if a community's considering building a spec building, um, are there some basics that you're looking for? Start with 100,000 square feet, uh, you know, 30 plus foot height, ceiling heights. What what advice would you give to a community right now if they want to move this building quickly? I think you nailed it with that. Uh, 100,000 square foot expandable. Um, so you, you don't limit yourself by by either the topography or the parking lots or any other infrastructure that you built without having a long view in mind. Uh, that's that's certainly that's certainly important. And thirty foot clear is kind of the minimum now. It's like why, as especially for distribution opportunities. I mean, it's it's remarkable some of the technology you see in these places that go to thirty six forty foot, and it, it involves. It's not a it's not a person doing anything. It's it's all it's all it's all robotics. It's all mechanized and and that vertical storage and the vertical storage is just like a, forty foot is it's around. It, we see it, but you know it has to be at least thirty. Is the do you think a company invests in this the way the climate is right now with the projects you're seeing uh, that you can you know move the building. Uh, if you've got also the right access to infrastructure, and I'm talking about roads or rail, 
whatever the needs is. Uh, because I'm finding that uh, the, for the communities that can't afford it on the public side to build a speculative building, you need to get private uh, industry to perhaps invest in it. And sometimes they're a little you know, leery of, of making what they consider to be a gamble. Well, it's less so a gamble now than it was before because mm-hmm. of the scarcity of, of available buildings. Uh, so that's part of the, kind of the conversation that the community has to have, we have to have, the, the client has to have with, with a developer or some, the eventual landlord, whatever form that takes. To be, be able to convince them that you're, you're inheriting a risk uh, but there's so little supply out there. The risk is so different from it was what it was five years ago. It's yes, there's financial risk. Uh, do you have a building that sits idle for two or three years? I hope not. I, I don't think so. But the, the way we're going right now, but it's it's possible. You just have to be able to kind of bear that internally, if as a community or as a developer, um, it it's not ideal. But you. you at this point, with the way things are going and the trends are still in place, I don't see how there's a downside besides just time. He is helping us incentivize beauty in Mississippi. <laughs> Bob Westover, thanks for joining us on Mississippi Prospects. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Entergy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Mississippi Power, MWB, the Tennessee Valley Authority, Atmos Energy, the Area Development Partnership, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, Madison County Economic Development Authority, the Mississippi Research Consortium, the North Mississippi Industrial Development Association, and Rankin First Economic Development Authority, and produced by MWB Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info. <laughs>